0: Hey Prairie Pod listeners I'm Megan Benage, regional ecologist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources.
1: And I'm Dr. Marissa Allering, lead scientist with the Nature Conservancy in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. I'm Sarah Vosick, wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service based out of the Morris Wetland Management District. And
2: I'm Mike Worland. I'm a wildlife
1: biologist with the Minnesota DNR Non-Game Wildlife Program.
0: We're part of the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership, and we're here to help you... Discover the Prairie. Discover the Prairie.
1: Discover the Prairie. Discover the Prairie.
0: Hey, welcome back Prairie Peeps, Prairie Pod listeners. We haven't really decided what we're going to call you. Sarah, do you have any ideas? I kind of like Prairie Peeps. I mean, it's only season six. I feel like this is something we maybe should have discussed before. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But I like Prairie Peeps. It's kind of nice. Oh my goodness! We're we're back today on Prairie Tuesday to talk to you about some pretty amazing Prairie things. I know on the Prairie Pod. Who knew it's happening? We're going to talk about a very exciting subset of Prairie, or at least I mean, Sarah. I don't know how you feel about this, but I think of what we're going to talk about today as a subset of Prairie. I do. What do you think? Yeah, same here. Yeah, so yep. Part of the an integral part of the Prairie landscape. We're going to talk about savannas. That's right. We're bringing in the trees. And Sarah came up with this first line, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think it's pretty good. So today we're going to spend some time in the shade. No, not throwing it around, but basking in it. We're talking about savannas, the unsung hero of the prairie landscape. When I think about prairies, we just talked about it. Savannas are a subset of them, right? They're this special class of habitat. I even named my dog after them. That's how much I love them. Or really, you just can't name your dog Prairie because that's just mean. Prairie dog, get it? No. Uh-huh, ha, wow, I really need a laugh track. <laughs> it needs to happen for, these, for these awkward moments to go a little bit faster. <laughs> well, we are talking savannas, and they're we're going to talk about what they are. But I'll just give you a teaser: they're these transitional communities. They're constantly changing on the landscape as we get. As the landscape goes for succession and moves towards an oak forest, we get savannas somewhere in between. And in fact, oak savannas are one of our rarest habitats in Minnesota. We often talk about the prairie being super rare, but savannas are even more rare than that. And we'll talk about how much more rare. But we know, like we always say, diversity is an important indicator of health in any system. And so it's really important to have all of these prairie pieces and I don't mean to diss savannas by calling them a subset. I just mean that there's this big prairie landscape and within it there are savannas. Right? Fair? One type of prairie, yeah. One type of prairie. Sarah, what I love about you is I can say something with about 700 words and you can say it with 10. That is what I love about you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to say I make things way more complicated than they need to
1: be. <laughs> well usually oh, I put. have the benefit of listening to your long explanation and then it's a little easier to come up with a succinct summary.
0: Look at that. Alliteration. Strong. I like it. Well, without any further ado, we have got three fantastic guests with us today to share their savannah knowledge. And so we're just gonna jump right in and have them tell us a little bit more about themselves, you know, what they do, why they love prairie conservation. All the good stuff. And Becky, we're going to start with you.
3: Great. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Becky Esser. I'm a biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I've worked with the service for nearly 24 years, all within the prairie ecosystem. Um, My main job as a biologist is to monitor our management and restoration actions. Uh, And uh, part of that is monitoring savanna. I was first introduced to savanna when I worked in northern Iowa and was just amazed by the sheer enormity of the big bur oaks and, and and just love the look of savannah and the landscape and the feel
0: um so i'm excited to talk about savannah with you all today we're excited you're here neil tell us a little bit about yourself
4: um i'm neil slifka i am the uh area resource specialist uh, with the division wow. of parks and trails uh, office out of rice lake state park um i cover the southern region of the state Um, I've been with the DNR since 2017, working on resource management for the division. Uh, Prior to that, I spent about 10 years out on the West Coast doing a mix of forestry and wildlife biology out there.
1: Okay, Greg, your turn.
4: Yeah, uh, Greg Hoke, Prairie
2: Habitat Team Supervisor. Um, So I spent about eight years in graduate school down in the Flint Hills of Kansas, um, which is hundreds and hundreds of square miles of native prairie beautiful uh did a lot of work with uh, the bison herd uh burning um my actual research was on eastern red cedar a species which i'm still not real crazy about um (laughs) moved to minnesota about uh 22 years ago or so um did some teaching i actually worked with becky for a couple years up at detroit lakes and then i've been with the dnr for the last 12 or so years um Do a lot of uh, a lot of primarily office work, a lot of funding, a lot of policy work, um, some legislative work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I tell people that nothing I do is exciting, but hopefully my efforts um, allow the other people in the real world to get the real work done. So
0: it's always a good way to start. To, you know, set that bar low. <laughs> Nothing I do is exciting. <laughs> so that, that tells the listeners that they are definitely want to go, going to want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> Greg, don't set the bar so low. You're going to share some great ecological knowledge today. People are excited to hear it. All right,
1: Sarah, you ready? Jump right in. I am ready. Are you ready?
0: I'm ready. Okay. Let's get shady. Well, Wait a minute. Old, <laughs> Just kidding. That's
1: of different podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Neil, would you kick us off and just give us a a feel generally for what exactly counts as a savanna?
4: Yeah. So, you know, just structurally speaking, I, I think we look at a savanna as a um, a system with kind of widely spaced, open grown. Um, typically fire tolerant um species of of trees they don't form the the they're not the dominant vegetation in the system the dominant vegetation would be grasses and and forbs so when when earlier we mentioned we're we're talking about um that it's a kind of this um combination of prairie with interspersed oak trees, that's really what it is. But the the structural form of the trees, um, usually like the, the kind of the ratio of crown height to crown width, uh, these trees have a kind of a a very notable form, a kind of a regal form. Uh, they're they're very round, um, and and part of that is ha, has to do with kind of how they they evolved on the landscape. Uh, oaks are the Typical species in bur oaks are what we think of when we think of uh, oak savanna, and and part of that is because they've evolved to 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 grow out of grubs, or they can spend a long time underground. They can be top killed, but they'll they'll keep coming back. So whereas other species will uh, are not so fire fire tolerant in terms of woody vegetation. Um, these persist, uh, but they're also allowing in enough light for that prairie vegetation, that herbaceous vegetation to to persist underneath. So they kind of have little combinations of of both woodland or edge species, but also those, those prairie species that we, we typically think of.
0: I love that you describe them as regal, because I kind of think of open-grown bur oaks as regal, too. I always think of them as like stretching
1: mm-hmm. their...
0: Their branches out, their limbs out, like they can really fully be all of who they are. <laughs> like yeah. they're not crowded into a little forest. They can just <laughs> stretch and reach and just get those magnificent, you know, wide crowns which yeah well i describe
4: myself as regal often
0: (laughs) Yes. oh goodness so becky give us a little um that was a great summary by the way but tell us a little bit about specifically in minnesota some of the common types of savannah that we might encounter here
3: Yeah. um, So in Minnesota, we mostly have two overarching kinds of savannas and it's similar to prairies other than the wet prairie, but we have primarily dry savannas and mesic savannas. And the dry savannas in the north and the south have a mix of plants that are similar to dry prairie, um, along with these gnarly burr oaks. A lot of times they're short and stunted with tris- twisted trunks. Um, oftentimes they're they're almost described as looking windswept, and a lot of times they're associated with dunes or hills or bluffs. And with these, um, besides burr oak in southern Minnesota, pin oak is also common in these dry savannas. And then in our mesic savannas, um, they're dominated mostly by large burr oaks. And these are those stately regal bur oaks, big open-grown um, structure, uh, along with the prairie grasses and forbs and spring ephemerals um, that grow along with it. With these Mesic savannas, many of them have either been converted for other uses or they have degraded so much that oftentimes they're not recognizable um, as they're trending into more of woodlands and closed canopy forests. And many of our savannas are, are very rare and some of them are even considered globally imperiled.
0: And you said something there that I want to make sure we understand. You said that our music savannas, so the ones that are in between dry and wet, are degraded. Like, what are the common things that are degrading them?
3: Often with these savannas, besides the the conversion to other land uses, um, because we are not necessarily aware or understand really what a savanna is. Um, They've been left to just sit there. Um, Historically, similar to prairie, these savannas could withstand regular fire uh, and grazing pressure, oftentimes, you know, multiple times of the year, for sure, annually. And with uh, European settlement settlement and fire suppression, these savannas have sat and degraded over time, and the vegetation ultimately converts from a light-loving fire necessary fire-adapted vegetation to a shade-loving and fire-insensitive vegetation.
0: That's a perfect summary. Thanks for that.
4: So so one point I wanted to make was that, um, you know, while we still see some of those larger oak trees on the landscape, those open-grown oak trees that are fairly indicative of um, what could have been mesic mesic savannas down here at least in my area um we we've lost that that herbaceous or ground layer so we no longer have the the dominant grasses or forbs that that accompanied uh, accompanied those trees so there is some evidence of of what had occurred on the landscape close to pre-european settlement
0: so basically we're talking about that degradation i mean both of you are saying this it's land use conversion or just the absence of natural ecological processes that would be at work in these systems like fire and grazing
4: yeah and and one thing is is the the rapid pace at which these these communities can shift from from being mostly open oak savanna, moving into uh, a more of an oak woodland over the course of maybe 20 to 40 years, it doesn't take very long for them to get pushed pushed to that state in absence of, of their disturbance.
0: Nature and prairies are always changing, right Sarah? Yes, ma'am. I like when you say, yes, ma'am, to me. (laughs) makes me very happy. (laughs) The only other quick point I was going to make is, Becky, when you were talking about Southeast Minnesota savannas, uh, you mentioned pin oak. And then another one we just want to make sure to touch on is that we also might pick up some black oak and jack pine, believe it or not, and some of those systems in Minnesota, which is pretty neat.
3: Yeah, that's pretty cool.
0: Because we cool. don't we often think about oak savannas mm. and that's really most of them, but it's interesting that you have a pine species that I always think of as highly flammable be able mm. to come in and be the overstory tree in a savannah system. Which we also get when we move into southern United States, we'll see that as well when we talk about longleaf pine other sorts of systems that have prairie in the understory. Anyway, <laughs> waxing on. Let's stay in Minnesota, will we? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Minnesota's pretty nice. So, so those, all right. are,
1: those are great, um, great pictures, I guess. I think you both painted really nice pictures of what, what savannas look like and, um, you know, what you can expect to see out there and sort of why they are where they are. But um, Greg, I was hoping maybe could you, I know you're a, a real history buff, and always I always appreciate the sort of big picture that you can provide through that lens. So could you sort of zoom out for us and just give us an idea of the the role or the extent of savannas historically in Minnesota and, you know, what, what do we have left compared to that? Um, why are they important? Why do they matter as an ecosystem that we should worry about? Big picture stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so some of the big picture stuff is, um, where they're at, um, I, I'm, and I'm going to arbitrarily break break the state into three different types of savannas, um, probably the first and the biggest is that prairie forest transition that kind of goes diagonally from northwest to southeast Minnesota. Um, there has been a ton of research um, on the dynamics of that boundary over over the years, many, many publications.
0: Greg, as you're talking about that boundary really quick, give me some, um, give me some markers as I'm looking at a map of Minnesota that I can, like any towns or cities that that boundary is close to, or is it right in the middle as you're making that divide?
2: It, it I would actually, I would say it is very close to draw a line from the Northwest corner to the Southeast corner of the state. It's going to wiggle a little bit. Um, but that's actually a fairly good, probably historic, um, boundary, um, then and the reason I'm going to I'm going to quibble on your question, Megan, is because is because we know that boundary probably shifted tens to hundreds of miles back and forth east mm. and west um, over over the the decades and the centuries. Um, a dry period, a wet period, that prairie forest would, would shift and then the savanna would also shift kind of the, the, the buffer or boundary or ecotome between those two.
0: So I think that probably, was a perfect quibble, so I'll you, allow thank it. Thank you. <laughs>
2: um, so th- that's that's probably the biggest, that's where most of the uh, um, oak savannah, especially the oak savannah was. I uh, p- hear people talk about the big woods area. That was probably mostly savannah kind of around the area and just north of what we today think of the Twin Cities. Um, so... Western Minnesota dry prairie, Eastern Minnesota wet forest, and then the savanna in between. At a regional scale, if you look at a local scale, quite often our savannas are on the hilltops, um, and there's a could be a couple couple reasons for that. One thing people have talked about is hilltops have much less grass, therefore much 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 fewer fuels, and so the fires would not have been intense. Um, I know some of my f- favorite prairies. Um, Becky and I were playing rock, paper, scissors yesterday to see, pick who got to pick, which is their favorite, their favorite savannas. But a lot of the savannas I'm familiar with are on hilltops. Um, so those may or may not have been a little more stable. I'm not sure I like that word talking about the prairie. And then the third um, place where out in the prairie would be, where you would have seen either forests or savannas would have been on the south and especially the southeast side of of a lot of our larger wetlands and lakes, that would have been the fire shadow. Um, our fires probably would have come primarily from the northwest, so the southeast side of our, our larger water bodies, they would have gotten fire, but it would not have been those intense head fires. And again, a lot of the a lot of the oak savanna that I'm familiar with in Minnesota lines up perfectly, um, especially the savannas on our WMAs and WPAs that that I kind of Visual or virtually walking around the state in my mind, that's where I see a lot of uh, is on kind of the backside of or on the fire shadow of a lot of those uh, um, large lakes and wetlands. So and just
0: so folks know, the WMA is Wildlife Management Area and WPA is Waterfowl Production Area. And so those WPAs are managed by US Fish and Wildlife Service and WMAs are managed by DNR. Just for folks not in the know with all of our acronyms.
2: Yeah. And then as far as the importance, I think I could just kind of go back and, and, and kind of touch on what Neil said a few minutes ago in that all, all types of kind of boundary ecosystems, ecotones, um, you've got this really nice mix of prairie species and forest species. So these areas are quite often have much higher diversity than the prairie itself or the forest itself. And so that, that biodiversity is probably one, one reason these, uh, these habitats or ecosystems are, are so important out there.
1: Sure. That's a really great point. I like that. Um, and so we talked about, um, the, you know, we, mostly we think of Savannah as being Oak, um, especially bur Oak in much of Minnesota, but there are a number of other trees that can make up that, that upper canopy. I was wondering if, um, and this could be for any of you, if you could talk a little bit more about specifically what some of those understory plants would be. I, I liked that Neil explained it as like a a prairie with some trees um, scattered around. But so, you know, what's what's the prairie component? Are there specific kinds that we see in savannas? Is it just anything you could see in any old prairie?
4: Uh, <clears throat> I can maybe give a, f- a few examples. Um, you know, to, to speak on one thing would be other tree species. And if we think about, um, as Greg was mentioning, some of that continuum of things like um, bluff prairies that grade into woodlands, maybe on the north or the backside of some of these bluffs, um, towards the top and ridgelines, you might get communities of more open grown oak with that understory of prairie vegetation still but also some things like Shagbar hickory and things that are a little bit more fire tolerant um when we look at understory species some things that typically show up are, are at least in in my area are species like lead plant um these semi forbs or, or semi shrubs so things like lead plant um, prairie rose will show up but then we get other things um you know it's not very shrub dominated in there but indicators that you might have something would be things like hazel as well uh hazels and things like that um we do see a lot of uh snowberry wolf wolfberry um but then when we look at some of the forbs we get cool some cool season grasses porcupine grass but also indian grasses and then we get other kind of um things like cocoon uh hoary cocoon and then you get interesting things that come from the woodland edge, like like hog peanut would be something that typically shows up in a savanna-type a setting. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a mix of, of things, but somebody had mentioned um, uh, some of the ephemerals, but other things like full Solomon seal and things end up showing up in there. So you get this kind of nice mix of, of cool, warm season grasses, but then all these unique forbs. So, and then if you actually move into some of the, those, uh, oak barrens, these black oak barrens, these things down in Southeast where you might see components of, of, uh, jack pine, you you get things like lupin, wild Mm lupin, and, um, some other rare species like seaside threon or, um, uh, fame flower and things like that. So there's some, some real, real unique plants that grow with it, but there's also, um, you know, what we typically think of as more prairie-dominated plants.
2: Yeah, one one question I've seen in the literature is, both in the world of plants, as in the world of animals, is, are there species that are unique or specialized to savanna, or is the savanna just a mix of species from the two, um, prairie and forest? And, most of what I've seen, people are more coming to the conclusion that it, it, it really is a mix. There isn't like a species that you can only find in, in Savannah or primarily in Santa, Savannah and very rarely in the other two. So, But the, the story isn't closed on that. There's still people poking around and, and analyzing those plant communities.
0: Well, and I think too, and we talked about this a little bit in our prep, right? But like anytime you diversify a community, and so in this case with the savannah, you have prairie underneath and then you add mast trees, centrally trees that make acorns, nuts. And so then you're going to have species that benefit from that additional source of food. And so while they might not be be only occur in a savannah they might have an enhanced quality of life if those habitats exist because they've got additional food sources basically living their best life (laughs) in a (laughs) savannah because there's shade too which is awesome this is a really great overview in general of like what makes a savannah different from a prairie and then what we expect as we're walking in it. So I want to shift gears a little bit from the ecology of the site and talk a little bit about restoration. We all know, because we have all spent many hours trying to rebuild and restore prairie, it is complicated. It is really hard. And so now we're going to talk about restoring savanna, which I think is even harder because you have all of these dynamics at play of first I have to get my prairie established, but now I also want trees in it. Now I have to make sure as I'm applying fire and grazing and all of these things that I don't kill the trees that I want to be my mature shade trees for my savanna. It's this whole balance of techniques and process and it's it's really complicated. So, and you guys have a lot of experience in this. So we want to make sure that we're picking your brains here and really understanding some of the tips and tricks that you've picked up along the way. So we're going to start with, how do you know, like the very beginning, right? Like I've come to a site. How do I know if I should consider that site for savannah restoration, prairie restoration, or woodlands? What are some of the things that you look for? And let's start with Becky. Becky.
3: Well, I think one of the first pieces of information to have is thinking about that general map that Greg was describing of of Minnesota and are you in that that tension zone, that transition zone area that that could could, you know, could host, could support savanna ecosystems within those prairies. Um so, if you're out on a site and you are in one of those general locations, you know we've we've talked about those big stately oaks. So, depending on where you are, and if you've got the the soil types, so there's the same things that we look at with with prairie. We can we can think about with savanna, old old maps, um, soils maps, um, GLO or General Land Office plats and survey notes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These all are helping paint that picture when we're out on the land. So if we have those big stately oaks, whether they're, whether they're filled in with shade tolerant growth of other trees, if there's a mid story shrub layer, or you see some, some prairie speak species peeking out, I would say there's a good chance that you are potentially in an area that could be restored to Oak savanna. Um a lot of things that we look for in those oaks besides in, in addition to those open grown, uh, low hanging branches, if 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 the oaks are are kind of unhealthy or dying, they may start shedding their lower limbs. They may have grown some healing nubs over them. Um, we may see where some of those oaks have been cut for firewood or to build houses during European settlement, uh, so they could have multiple stems. Um, so those are some cues that you're in a savanna area. A- again, you could look at the understory vegetation, and a lot of these degraded savannas, some of those some of those key species, some of the savanna indicators may not be present. But if you look at places where roads have been cut, or edges of where land use changes occur or maybe where a little patch of sunlight is still flowing in through that closed overstory, story, you could look for some of those prairie species and, you know, you may have the potential to restore the savanna there. Those are just some of the things I think about when I'm out on the land, asking whether it could be a savanna
0: or not. Neil, what do you think? Anything to add?
4: Yeah, it, uh, I, i agree with becky there on on everything she said it's it's kind of you know in in a lot of these these historic savannas trees some trees may have been cut but there's also evidence of these open grown the open grown character the trees and a lot of the tree spacing might still be there if if the main um the main driver of that current state was the removal of disturbance removal of that disturbance regime and that that frequency and severity so in some cases it may be that the savannah is still there in some cases your site might not historically have or really have been able to support savannah i mean really um it, it comes down to what was the historic disturbance where you were and is is that um is that something that can be reintroduced to that landscape? So um, we look at these oak savannas as being um, reliant on on fire and a, a frequency and a return interval that that supports that vegetation and that community. Um, we we wouldn't go throw an oak savanna in a floodplain if it's not going to receive the appropriate disturbance. Um, at the, you know, while fire might come through periodically, it might be at such a Long return uh, interval that it, it it's not going to support that, and that community is going to shift towards more of a closed community or something else. So, yeah, I think there there are indicator species that we can look for. There's uh, landforms and soil types that we can um, look at that would support our decision making, but also um, you know is that disturbance was it historically there and can it return uh, the other thing would be is I'll, I'll give a plug for dnr land view and using some of the 1938 or historic um uh, historic aerial photos that are available online too and sometimes you can pick out the trees that were there in 38 in that are still there on the landscape and help kind of cater cater your approach towards restoration
0: Absolutely. And I like that you both mentioned the history of the land and I'll also put in a plug for the current state of the land, right? Like we're, we all know this. We're not going back to a fixed point in history. We have to operate with what We have now and what we might think is facing that piece of land right now. So I also like to look at, okay, historically what's going on, but then also what's the current situation today and how much time, energy and resources do I have? So, and everybody's nodding. You guys can't see that because it's an audio podcast, but I promise you it's happening. So, you know, but it's just one of those things, like maybe you're at a point where the understory's gone, um, the bur oaks, while you can tell that they have those big, wide crowns, they've pretty much filled into a solid bur oak forest um, and they've closed that canopy together. And so the question then is, you know, it's there's not a, necessarily a wrong answer here, I guess what I'm saying, but you have to ask yourself as a resource manager or a landowner, do I have the energy, time and resources to thin this stand to bring the prairie back here? And if you're me, my answer is yes, but, but you may not. And that's OK. Like we need to make space for that change that happens with land as we're looking at restoration and how we connect the landscape. So and, and Greg has comment here.
2: Yeah. And and part of that is, like like I said, these these transitional areas are so dynamic that and we don't need to go all the way back to the glaciers when mastodons were running around. But even go back the last three, four hundred years, you know, pick a point on the map and I can probably find a decade um, if I had my way back machine where that was open prairie savanna and closed canopy forest. Um, So arbitrarily pick. Um, which one you want. I say arbitrarily, um, somewhat facetiously. Um, The other thing that I know is getting a lot of attention these days when it comes to restoration is in the context of climate change. So we just mentioned going, we're not going back in time. Um, We we may want to be thinking about going forward in time Um, in, you know, should we be restoring any habitat that we know the climate is going to not favor in, you know, 50 to 100 years. Um, and then on top of that is, as we've said, is the management is, um, yeah, if, if you don't think you're going to have the time, staff, resources, et cetera, to, uh, to manage that land, to get to that particular desirable endpoint, things to think about.
0: Well, and I like that you said what when you were being facetious and talking about arbitrarily, I mean, really what you're talking about is what you said right at the beginning is that they're dynamic systems. And so we can restore something to a savanna, but we know it's constantly going to be in that transitional state of change where depending on the management that's applied, they're either leaning more towards a prairie or they're going more towards an oak woodland. I mean, that's the nature of being in transition. (laughs) like Mm -hmm. Nothing stays the same. And so... Uh, Hopefully we're not confusing you. Basically, we're saying you have options. (laughs) You got choices and the land is going to tell you things about what was there, what is there right now, what might be able to be supported in the future. And then you just have to make a decision. And even if you choose oak woodland or you're going to take it to a prairie or a savanna, you're probably all right. Because somewhere along the way, there's going to be different decisions that are made that will push that community either (laughs) one way or another.
4: Can I piggyback on Greg there? Yeah, and I think if we look at it, you know, at a longer time scale, you know, 8,000 to 3,000 years ago, we would see that and, and up to the present, we've had iterations of everything, like Greg said, we've had forest here that succeeded to... Oak woodlands—that's succeeded the prairie—that's you know come and gone a little bit over over the the centuries—and you know it's not like we pick one spot. The climate's going to change, and the climate's going to have some dictation as long as we allow things like fire to occur on the landscape um, as to what the assemblages of these species are and, and when they're occurring and where they're occurring as well. So it's, yeah, it's, it's evolved over, over the centuries. So, and it continues to evolve.
1: I really appreciate that long view. And I think that's, I don't have a lot of savannah in my work areas so tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that might be a extra important, it might be extra important to, to really think hard about what you want to do in some of these locations that you know maybe could support a savanna just because if you want to plant a little baby bur oak tree and hope that it becomes one of those regal masters down the road, that's going to take a long time. That's a long commitment as compared to restoring a totally herbaceous prairie system. You know, there's maybe a little bit more give in your timeline and um, in managing a sort of early successional plant community like a like a prairie. So I just I like that idea of really being thoughtful about what you want to have and what makes the most sense for any given piece of ground. And I think that makes a lot of sense to me. So,
2: um, yeah. And oh, Sarah, don't mean to just, diss- but we, we, we've, you know, we talk about these long, long time scales. Uh, if you look at the literature, they talk about um, forest con- or Prairies converting to closed canopy forest in as much as in as few as thirty years. Um, as soon as the Euro-American settlers came in and basically stopped the fire regime, um, you know. For yeah, as, as Sarah as you just said, you don't have much savanna in your work area. Um, Becky's work area, though, um, just a few miles north of Detroit Lakes, there are all sorts of signs out there about where the the prairies meets the pines. Um, and the, the, the prairie to Pines to Prairie Birding Trail, um, that transition, especially there kind of in Becker, Monoman um, County, up into Polk County, that transition belt is really, really narrow. Um, so you could have really, really fast shifts over the course of years to decades. We don't need to talk about centuries and millennia um, when we're doing this. So yeah, there are parts of the state where those those transitions can probably happen and probably did happen historically very quickly.
1: Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the nuts and bolts. And Becky, I want to ask you this question, just as my my friend to the north who does work with a lot more savannah And I know I've asked you these questions before this too, Mm -hmm. before this podcast, but, you know, so, so we say we do all that hard thinking and and long-term thinking and decide, yeah, okay, this is a place I want to try to establish a prairie. Can you talk through just some of the, you know, like I said, more of the nuts and bolts sort of steps that you take in initiating a a savanna reconstruction project and, and maybe as compared to a prairie, prairie restoration?
3: Well, I will start with saying that it, we should maybe land on terms a little bit. Um, as far as reconstruction, I haven't reconstructed a savannah. When I think about reconstructing something, it's from scratch. And we talked about everything that goes into maybe reconstructing that savanna from the ground up and, and literally like, planting the acorns and planting the trees. I have no, I don't, I don't have any, any experience in that right now at all. And I don't necessarily plan to because of some of the things that we had talked about. Um, but when restoring Savannah, again, it's back to, you know, walking the land and really listening to the land. And I like how Megan put it. I mean, the land is going to tell you what it should be. Um. Up here, I'm I'm fortunate. We we have a lot of those stately oaks that are still present on the landscape. Um, we've got a good feel of where our savanna restorations, where we have that potential to 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 save that that savanna in some of these locations. Um, our savannas here. You know, range from those oaks with, a, with with really no pressure in the in the midstory with shrubs or a canopy of of shade intolerant or shade tolerant trees, um, just a really degraded herbaceous layer to to that ladder where the canopy all filled in and we have you know box elder and aspen and and some other trees that have have been able to take over. Um, the first thing I think about, and we've talked about the importance of space and we've talked about the importance of light in these oak savannas. These are sun drenched communities. They need light. And so first things first, I would look at those bur oaks and look for that structure that that is like the backbone of the savanna. It's not the most necessarily the most important component of the savanna, but it's the backbone or the structure of the savanna. So... When we restore savanna and we have the the shade tolerant, you know, shade loving, fire and sensitive trees, the first thing we do is remove those trees. Um, the l- light needs to penetrate the ground because right now the only light that's reaching that understory is in the springtime when there's no leaves on any of those trees right and that's not going to produce the type of herbaceous community that these savannas once supported but you have to be careful because when you remove these trees that light all of a sudden floods in to that understory and we all know what typically happens, you're going to, we'll probably get a, a, a big flush of noxious weeds, invasive weeds, maybe some weedy for, or some weedy natives, but likely it's going to be all non-natives. So then it's just about kind of, you know, then it's taking it slow and, and slowly reintroducing fire, um, you know, thinking about whether chemical is, is something that you want to use to combat some of these non-natives, um, I know some folks use grazing to bring back those herbaceous communities. Of course, a shrub, a sh- midstory shrub layer is going to potentially be problematic, especially if it's non-native. Um, so it's going to be a long battle. Um, but but allowing that sunlight to penetrate that understory to me is that that first important step. And then you can start managing and restoring it like we do our, our tall grass prairies or our, you know, with fire and grazing and, and other treatments.
0: Neil, what do you think about that? So, Becky was describing kind of like, I already have my trees and so now I need to figure <laughs> out how I'm bringing my understory layer back. Is that most of the savannah restorations that you encounter or have you done any where you're starting from scratch?
4: In general, we, we're similar to what Becky is doing. I mean, we've got this, the structure is there in a lot of cases in terms of the, the trees. And, you know, if you actually go out, even in some of these um, savannas that have succeeded in the oak woodlands and have grown in, uh, in, in some cases, it's, you know, the, the trees will tell you their spacing. in in a lot of cases so you can go in remove some of those more mesic or less fire tolerant species that have grown in like weeds what we usually end up also having to contend with is um as becky pointed out that that mid shrub layer which in my area ends up being a lot of uh buckthorn or uh, honeysuckle and then we end up doing a lot of either handwork mechanical work um just to try to, to bring that down to a level. Um, there's often some form of herbicide treatment follow up, whether it's cut stump or uh, foliar treating some resprouts if necessary. You know, I, ideally um, reintroducing fire into that landscape as soon as as soon as it'll carry is is going to be pretty critical. And and what that'll do is allow you to. Um, uh, that's just a. A very cost-effective and useful management tool. It's the natural disturbance regime, um, and then and then kind of what we look at is, you know, do we need to reduce some of the the oaks due to just how how dense they've become in there? And a lot of people get reluctant to start culling oak trees, um, but you know, in in order to get the structure and that light availability down to that ground layer, you're going to need to suck it up and. And remove some of them and some of these oak trees that have again they've they formed from grubs um they can be cut they'll regrow fires keeping them in check they, their below ground structures might be there for a century you know getting large and large and large and just hanging out down there waiting for us to stop you know burning the landscape or grazing in certain areas so they may be down there they may be present but you know that community and and that that character and and that um, that ground layer is is kind of the result of that disturbance and I think um, when folks can do a combination of more intensive management up front and getting fire onto the landscape that's really where you, you you can kind of start to accelerate some of some of that management but I wouldn't as a practitioner I wouldn't. You, you, Don't rush, you know, and don't have your expectations set, uh, you know, too narrow and expect to see results right away. Um, Becky pointed out, usually you see weeds your first (laughs) few years, and that is usually what comes up. So, or you let light in and all those robins have been pooping out buckthorn berries under your, you know, (laughs) your big Oak trees for however long and you just release all that. So it's, um, yeah, expect some, some prolonged effort, but, uh, I've
0: never had someone, you know, paint Robbins as the villain – of their story. So, 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 you, my know, you know, you usually just hear these nice, like they're the harbingers of spring. and yeah. <laughs> but, in, but in Neil's world, <laughs> he does not appreciate
4: it. I can hear the berries dropping now.
0: You can hear the berries the dropping.
4: dropping.
0: <laughs> oh man. Um, a few things that I want to follow up question ask. Wow, that's a weird way to say that. <laughs> <A few> follow-up <laughs> questions I'd like to ask. It's like I said, the whole sentence in reverse. Uh, <laughs> it's mostly about how do you manage uh, tree regeneration? Basically, you're you're both describing these situations where you have these beautiful mature trees and you're basically figuring out what do I need to thin here to maximize my light? But what about do you let nature kind of plant those seedlings for you? Or are you actively going in and trying to plant and protect some baby oaks so that you know that you're going to maintain that habitat through time? Because we know that's it. You got to have different age classes in there if you're going to continue the savannah journey.
3: I'll, I'll start with that. Um, we have, I, I think I've already said it, but we. I have not ever planted oaks. Um, but it's important to remember that oaks are also sun loving plants. They need sun in order to regenerate. And so until you open up that, that ground layer, open up that canopy and allow that sun to penetrate that ground layer, um, those oaks and those, and then the, the, the acorns, you know, there's not going to be any regeneration until you do that. So, uh, so that's one important thing to remember. Um, we've gone as far as in our savannah restorations when we've still had contractors or been out there, you know, s- spraying some of the noxious weeds after after the the first first run through of, of tree thinning is we've gone as far as protecting those young oaks. We've been lucky enough in most of our restorations that we still have active regeneration. Um but we do protect, you know, we will, we will mark them. We will keep people out of there. We don't, we don't protect them from being depredated, you know, or predated maybe is a better word by deer or mice or voles or anything, but we do...
0: So basically being eaten by yeah. those things.
3: Yeah, so we don't keep that from happening necessarily, but we do keep them from being trampled from human disturbances if we are actively restoring because that is that is you know your next generations of of oaks as as those older older oaks start start becoming unhealthy and and dying you know you you do want many age classes in there.
4: Yeah, it, for us we we get a lot more cases where um, we do have some natural regeneration, and usually it's advanced to the point of you know these again that oaks are adapted to to be to at least, uh, you know, especially bur oaks, but pin oaks as well to some degree, and um, white oaks and things kind of grades down. But, um, you know, they're adapted to persist under the ground, you know, after being burned. So they can still, they can hang on. So even though their top is lost, they can hang on. Um, So we end up with a lot of these, once fire was taken off the landscape and fire prevention came really prevalent in the 20s and things, um, we had some hanger on oak trees and they're to a point. I, I think it takes 12 years or so, 10 to, 10 to 15 years, maybe for 10 to 20 years for oaks bur oaks to become more fire tolerant, uh, where they're not just getting completely top killed. And uh, so we've got those kind of shrouding these larger grown oak trees and and we're able to kind of selectively maintain some of those so we're getting that recruitment in we'll get a next you know a next cycle of oak trees that will will come up and and support that community but uh we're we're kind of able to also make the commitment to to reduce a few so we're not getting a growth form that is you know taller than it is wide substantially or a, a closed a closed stand growth form um and again I'll, i will say that it is hard for a lot of folks to say i want to go in and call out a bunch of oak trees just because it's uh that uh, there's i don't know it's sentimental maybe
0: <laughs> well it is hard because it you know they've just taken so we're connected to everything and i think we tend to feel that with trees because we can feel how long they've been living that life and So it it is difficult sometimes to make those management choices. But a good target to sort of keep in mind, we get this question a lot, you know, how many trees per acre in a savannah? And you're really only talking about 11 or 12 mature trees per acre, which is always a shocking number to people because they're like 11, (laughs) you know, as they look at this area where they've got many more trees than that. And that doesn't mean there's a spectrum there. Right. Like there's a spectrum with how far you want to push towards the the shadier side, towards the more woodland side, or if you want to push back to a prairie. But if we're talking about, you know, real savanna with lots of light and big, gnarly, beautiful oak trees, we're really, it's pretty small number of mature trees that we're looking at. And so just like Neil said, it can be tough to make those, those choices.
4: Yeah. And it's not really agreed upon what... <laughs> what tree <laughs> density and what canopy closure constitutes a uh,
0: absolutely
4: a so it might vary by state by researcher by practitioner mm-hmm. um you know some estimates were as low as uh one tree per acre
0: right
4: yep so
1: and that probably is just part of that transition right like it's it's a uh, we like to draw neat little boxes and make things straightforward and yes or no kind of answers but um We've talked all through this whole episode about how savannas are this transition between more more woodland communities, and so Neil and Becky, you both talked a little bit about um, just the level of patience that's needed for someone embarking on a a savanna restoration or a savanna reconstruction. So I was just wondering if, if either of you have any other advice for a, a brave manager who's thinking about taking on a project like this. Becky, why don't you go first if there's anything else that you think about?
3: Um, I would just, again, recall that these are transitional, very dynamic types of systems. And to take it slow. Um, if anything, and if you have the luxury, you know, play around with, with starting at a a smaller chunk of, of a Savannah just to see how things respond, because there are going to be times where you may, (laughs) <laughs> you may go too far and, and then not be able to continue that management or continue that management on an interval um, that you need. So if you, again, if you do have the luxury and not a lot of times we do in, in land management, I mean, if we have a, if we have a site and we have money to restore Savannah and we have a, you know, we have the ability to take down 15 acres of non, non Baroques, it's going to be a lot of work to follow up. So just plan ahead and, Go slow if you have to. Take a small amount at, at a time. And then monitor. <laughs> Hi,
0: was that your monitoring voice, Becky? That was good. my monitoring voice. Monitor. It's a little bit dumb. frightening as opposed to absolutely necessary <laughs> to know what's
3: going on. It might be frightening if you don't monitor. If you monitor, it's a way to give you a little like it. ease and be more relaxed I like it. then you can Why change not? it to
0: monitor <laughs> <laughs> neil how about you
4: uh, i would just say you know look at the resources that you have available to you um you know not everybody has the the, the same capacities to get some of this work done uh and, and and scale your project like becky said scale it accordingly and uh and try to monitor but um yeah temper your expectations as well um you know it's not it sometimes you have a seed bank there and you're surprised at other times you you know you need to look at what you're starting with and um you know what you what you have at your disposal to to do it with do you have the equipment do you have a budget to do it with it's going to be multiple years so i mean just be realistic and um yeah, just uh, take a look at what you have at hand and um, plan accordingly.
0: Nice, Greg. You literally wrote a book on prairies. So, what do you think are the most important things we should know when we're thinking about savanna restoration?
2: Yeah, th- thanks for mentioning the book. So, when I when I started this book, it was it started out this really nerdy, sciencey, um, plant community dynamics, chaos theory, etc. And what it kind of turned into over over the period of writing was the role that people have um, in natural systems. And I try to make the argument that probably people play a bigger role in the prairie than arguably any other ecosystem um, in North America. And I'm going to lump savanna in there. Um, So restoring, managing prairies and, and oak savannas it's probably the best example out there of how people and natural communities can work together um, to do really interesting um, and and really productive things. And I just, I'm not sure there are any other habitats in North America um, that we can say that as clearly as we can um, with, with tall grass, prairie and Savannah.
0: And just for those of you who are like a book, I love books. So, Greg's book is called To Find a Pasque Flower, a story of the tall grass prairie. And it came out in spring 2022. Ironically, it was published by Burr Oak Books. And it's no accident that we're talking about Savannah today with a baroque species. Greg has also written several other books as well. Booming from the Mists of Nowhere, Sky Dance of the Woodcock, arguably one of my favorite birds, and With Wings Extended. So if you want to do a little light reading, here's a few good ones to try. Neil, you were going to jump in and had a comment quick.
4: Yeah, I was just back to one more quick comment on, you know, what, what people can do and and what they should expect. I I think one real important thing would be is if if you have the ability to do it is get fire, return fire to the landscape. Um, that's gonna, again, it's one of the more cost effective things if you can start to implement it. If you've got the fuel fuel base there, um, you know I, I want to give a plug to fire. That was it.
0: I like it. Well, there's a lot of things that happen when you bring fire back. So that just happened for you, like you're describing. I always say we always get to this point in the podcast and I want to do six more podcasts about Savannah because there's so much to unpack. So this is basically just a, a, a little beginning primer on it. But we have got to move to our next section. is the part of the podcast where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper. And Becky, we're going to start with you. All right. Um, Well, the paper I chose for today is
3: out of bioscience. Um, It's from 2008. um, And the title is The Demise of Fire and Messification of Forests in the Eastern Eastern United States by Nowacki and Abrams. And this is a really interesting publication. Uh, it's, it's where the term mesification was first coined, and it's a really interesting explanation of how the suppression of fire over time has really caused that change in vegetation in our savannas and, and our prairies and even our woodlands, so that with the lack of fire, these shade-tolerant um, plant communities start to dominate, and then it becomes even harder to reintroduce fire because the microclimate has shifted so much to more cooler and moister conditions. Highly recommend.
0: And you had a second pick too that's in progress, not yet published, but we want to let people yeah, know. Yeah, really about quickly. It. Um, right now, the the there's a small
3: team with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Forest Service, and the United States Geological Service that are working on a protocol for monitoring vegetation of oak savannas and woodlands in the upper Midwest. And so um, this protocol will be really helpful. It gives both quantitative and qualitative types of um, methods so that you can measure really important characters of a savanna in progress of being restored. Um, And we hope to have it released sometime this spring.
0: And let us know when you do, and we will put that up right, on the thank website. You. Uh, Greg, what's your pick?
2: I'm going to go historical, um, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bookend uh, Minnesota. And so the first one I'm going to mention is John Weaver's Prairie Plants and Their Environment, um, which is kind of one of the classics of prairie. Um, and then the other one I'll mention is John Curtis's Vegetation of Wisconsin, um which really hits um oh did i steal yours i'm sorry thanks greg (laughs) (laughs) okay i'm just gonna do
0: that book to the camera which of course you guys can't see but it was a little bit funny that's okay you can maybe you like it for different reasons than greg does
2: (laughs) i'm gonna yeah so i'm gonna i'm just gonna stick with prairie plants in their environment then um and the reason i like this is is john weaver um, is one of kind of one of the godfathers of of, of the prairie. Uh, did all his work in um, Nebraska, primarily during the the 30s, the the drought, um, dirty 30s. A lot of what he says is still absolutely relevant. Um, a lot of the science from what he says has actually changed quite a bit. So it's it's really interesting to me to see what still rings true and what and what sounds a little dated um, in in the work that he was doing now almost a almost a full century ago so I, I, f- I find it very interesting for for that
0: reason Neil go ahead
4: all right well uh, yeah I had I chose the vegetation of Wisconsin by John Curtis and like Greg said it's a uh, um, It's a bit on the historical bend but it's also great descriptions of native plant communities in wisconsin that carry over into minnesota um just a lot of good natural history in there with uh, some excellent historical accounts of um of, of this area um around the time of european settlement um and it just gives us a good window into some of these these plant communities and the, the dynamics that, uh, that kind of help shape them as well as the species composition of, of some of them um, so yeah that's, that's all I have I, I, I like it for reasons both ecologically but also historically so it covers both
0: like fantastic it. hey Sarah yes Megan why don't you take a hike only if you come with me Okay, deal. bring snacks. (laughs) I knew you were going to say bring snacks. Why wouldn't I? It wouldn't be a hike with Megan and Sarah if there weren't snacks. (laughs) Let's all hike together. So, Becky, where are we hiking today? Tell us about a beautiful prairie place. Yes, we are going
3: to take a hike to Rushfelt Waterfall Production Area in Clay County. And um, this is one of my favorite WPAs uh, that, that are managed out of our office. And it's 650 acres of... Hills of grass and bur oak savannas and wetlands all interspersed. And we have a hill that we've lovingly named Oak Hill, which has this big, beautiful burr oak of just over 91 centimeters diameter at breast height or DBH, which is our standard way of measuring trees. And it's been dated to pre-1858. And it is the most gorgeous oak specimen I have seen. And um, although the prairie is degraded, we're starting to slowly yet surely uh, restore
0: that savanna. For those of you who can't see Becky right now, which is all of you listening, I particularly appreciate how she's describing this because her hands and her shoulders are just getting so excited as she's describing the the oaks there's a lot going on over here and i love it you can tell the joy is just radiating from you becky when you describe that place uh greg where are we going
2: okay so becky stole my favorite savannah too um so I'm, i'm gonna go to my second favorite savannah Um, So going heading south, uh, just south of Medelia or just west of uh, Mankato, uh, the Watanwan waterfowl production area, um, down kind of just a little south of where Megan is, um, has some, again, just as Becky said, some beautiful wetlands, uh, some native prairie and this gorgeous oak hilltop. Uh, which I know the Fish and Wildlife Service did a, a pretty significant amount of work on about a decade ago, and they've continued to burn it and keep on it, and um,
1: yeah, that's that's my pick. Neil, where are you taking us?
4: I'm going to head down southeast to Fillmore County and um, a Rushford Sandbarons SNA, uh, which is more of a um, – an oak barrens type uh community with a lot of interesting species it's much sandier soils um you got some of the bluff bluff prairies in there and it's just a uh, you, you kind of get the, the the spectrum down there the the gradation of um, various plant communities that that grade from those uh sandier toes of the slope and uh you can just kind of walk through and get a picture of uh just about everything in there and it's Fairly close to some of those um, those black oak jack pine type savannas as well. So we do have little bits of jack pine down in that area as well.
0: I love thinking about hiking to all these places. There's just I just love it. part of the reason why I love this part of the podcast. Lots of alliteration here, but I really do because people just you just all sound so happy as you're describing these places and you can just tell that the value it runs deep. Like we're just deeply connected to nature. And I love how that comes out when people talk about places that are meaningful to them. It always just makes me feel so lucky that we live and work in this state and with all of
1: these people who are so passionate about the lands that they manage and, and love. And I, I agree. One of my favorite parts of the podcast as well.
0: Same, same. Well, The podcasting doesn't end here. Catch us next Tuesday on Prairie Tuesday, where we'll be hitting the hay and chatting with two awesome DNR scientists, Dustin Graham and Fred Harris, as we learn from them about their research on haying prairies as a management tool to tackle invasive cool season grasses and promote overall prairie biodiversity. What the hay? That's just what we're going to find out. So as always, you can find all the resources that we talked about today on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources South Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited and audio engineered by the fantastic Dan Ryder and our web production team was led by Bobby Booz. All right. We'll see you all next week. In the meantime, keep cool in that shade. (laughs) Bye. Bye.